Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24 with Pastor John King. We are going to be finishing the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 6, as you know, and we're going to be in verses 21 through 24. Verses 21 through 24. Last week, we recognized that prayer is the catalyst which enables us to effectively utilize our spiritual armor. The spiritual armor that is God's armor that He gives us, and we've been learning all about that through the book of Ephesians, this last section. And nothing, we learned that nothing we do in our own strength or imagination can bring true victory over the enemy. And so, again, we're talking about the power of prayer. And I, I mentioned it in our opening remarks here in our announcements. Now today, we conclude, finally, the study of Ephesians with a kind of a benediction or a blessing, if you will, where we will meet a man named... Uh, the way you pronounce this is some people say Tychicus, but it's Tuhikas. Tuhikas. And I'm not going to... Well, I'll probably say it more than I'd like today. But that's his name. And... He was one of Paul's converts from Asia. He was, he was the one who actually wrote the bulk of the letter that we've been going through. And now Paul's going to grab the stylus from him, if you will. And he's going to handwrite the conclusion as is his habit. And it begins with a word about his companion, Tuhikas. And it concludes with his wishes for the church. His wishes for the church at Ephesus and his wishes for the church so let's look at our verses today. Chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. He says, But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tuhikas, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Verse 23, Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, thank you for taking us through. Thank you for our journey since last October through this wonderful letter that Paul has written. 2,000 years ago, we're still reading the writings that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, Lord God. We've still learned how to, and are learning how to apply the principles that you bring forth. And so, Lord, we thank you for bringing us now to the end of this letter as we get ready to move on to another epistle uh, here in a couple weeks. But, Lord, we just simply would ask that, you know, let's not just finish it with a ho-hum. Let's, let's take every bit of what you have to offer us, Lord, by your word. And by this great letter, we pray this now in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, he starts out, as we noticed, he's going to talk about a faithful minister. A faithful minister. He says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Now, Paul had given his prayer request last week. And now he wanted them to know his affairs or his circumstances. But obviously, just like it is with us, you can't possibly put it all down. You know, when you write a text, oftentimes it's brief. 
Oftentimes the rest of the story about a situation comes much better, is much better communicated verbally, face to face. And so here Paul has said, you know, he says, you, you want to know about how things are really going with me. I'm sending you someone to do that. His name is Tuhikas. Now the word is, means faithful. And his name occurs five times in the New Testament. And when you study through the book of Acts and all the letters to the churches, you notice that he was, um, his, his duties, his job, if you will, or his, his support of Paul's ministry, even though he had a ministry and a job of his own, was to deliver letters. Oftentimes he would be the one to deliver letters. And this particular letter was written from prison. And he would also give a status update when he came to deliver the letters to the churches. And so, you know, when you think about that, you know, this letter's been delivered. It's kind of interesting as we come, you know, you think about that letter that was being carried 2,000 years ago. And think of the impact that this letter has had on the lives of countless people. He was commissioned by Paul as a messenger to various churches, as we said. He was entrusted to deliver the letters of Paul to the church of Ephesus, Colossia, and Philemon. Those are the three places he delivered letters. He was also sent to Crete for the purpose of relieving Titus. You know, he was one of Paul's ministry partners among several who worked and walked with him. And now Paul calls him out as a beloved brother and a faithful minister. And he does so by describing his character. Notice what he says. First of all, he's a beloved brother. He's a dear brother. You would say it in today's language. You'd say, I just love this guy. I love the brother. I can't wait to introduce him to you. And he says he was a faithful minister. To be faithful means to be trustworthy. To take care of business. He gets things done. You know, somebody who's faithful is not always asking questions. Well, how do you, how do you want to do, how do you want to do? No, you're faithful to get things done once things are explained. Uh, somebody, when you're helpful to somebody else, you say, okay, I've got this taken care of. And you can count on that person over and over and over again. And we see that. We see that in the gifts that are here, the servants that serve in this church. We see it in our workplaces. We have faithful people. But he was a faithful minister. That word diakonos, this is where we get the word deacon from, the English word. But notice he was also a servant in the Lord. Not Paul's personal servant, though he did much to support the ministry. He, was, he knows that he's serving the Lord Jesus. Paul knows it. He knows it. And in case you're wondering what the life of ministry was like for Paul, you only have to look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 26 through 27, as we have up on the screen. This is what it would be like to do ministry with Paul. He says, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. That's what it's like to go do ministry with Paul. That's the things that he was faithful to do. Paul's commendation would probably, as I said, sound like this today. You're going to love this guy. He's a solid brother in the Lord. 
We served on the front lines together. You should have seen the work we did. We went from house to house giving out Bible tracts. We stood under the hot sun at the potato festival last year. Almost died from exhaustion. We had weird, strange things happen. Spiritual warfare going on when we did that. And afterwards. Not only does Paul commend him, but he trusts him to give the church an accurate picture of what Paul is doing. Excuse me, what Paul is, how he's doing, and what he's doing. In other words, you know, a letter can only cover so much information. This, this information was mainly to be ministered to the church about the things that God had given him. But on the personal side, you know, how's it going with Paul? And we don't know the details, how he filled them in. We have no idea, but you can only imagine what it was like. He would say, yeah, Paul, you know, he's not really, uh, you know, in a dungeon. He's in a house arrest. And so there's several of us men that can come and minister with him. He's free to move around a little bit. Uh, we, we spend time in prayer in the morning. He prays for every one of you. You know, uh, all the things that are happening. He, you should see this guard, this Roman centurion that he's been witnessing to, that we've been working and praying for, who's given his life to Christ. Those are the kind of things that he would fit, you know, bring. He, he might talk about Paul's health, but he would fill in the blanks. And he says in verse 22, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose. He was a messenger. And so he's like, you know, here's the purpose. Here's the reason, not only to deliver the letter that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. You know, not just hearing about, uh, you know, in this letter, you know, the word traveled relatively slow back then. Now we have instant message. We've got all the instantaneous digital information that <laughs> nails us. It comes at us in so many different ways. But back then it was slow. It was slow moving. And so the information, he just wants to encourage them. Parakaleo, comfort. Think about the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to encourage and to strengthen. Now, why is Paul so concerned about getting the word out? About making sure that he sends somebody who is faithful and trustworthy to deliver the letter? Well, that the letter would arrive, first of all, apart from, you know, something happening. But also because... Paul had a very close connection with his church, with, Ephesian, with the Ephesian church. Not only was Paul a great evangelist, but he was also their pastor. And keep in mind that Paul was a committed apostle who traveled extensively throughout the Middle East, Asia Minor, and Southern Europe. And now he was being held captive. He didn't have the freedom to move around that he once did. You could only imagine that. He didn't have the freedom to visit the churches as he would have liked to. And these amazing letters capture the heart of a man who was sold out for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I, pre I don't have eloquent speaking. I preach Christ and Him crucified. I'm not here to wow you, he would say. I'm not here to jump on, the on your intelligence and, and debate you on an intellectual level, though he was certainly capable of it. But he said, I preach Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Paul had a deep affection for the church at Ephesus. He spent two years of his life there. We get a further glimpse of his heart in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. Where Paul had sent for the Ephesian elders. He was on, his, he was on a return. He was on a ship. He was in a, heading back. Uh, uh, Acts 20, I think it is. Yeah, there it is. And he was heading back uh, ultimately to go to Jerusalem. And as he was passing by, 
He, he thought of Ephesus. He thought of the church in Ephesus. And he couldn't stop. He wasn't going to make the journey. But he sent word to have the elders from the church of Ephesus meet him on the beach at Miletus so they could make a quick stop. And he gave them a farewell address. And he told them, he announced to them that he probably wouldn't see them again. And he encouraged them to continue to take heed of themselves and to shepherd the flock as faithful pastors and leaders. In Acts 20, verses 36 through 38, And when he had said all these things, what did he do? He knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. You know, that's the way it is when we, when we say farewell to our loved ones sometimes, to our brothers and sisters who are moving on and going to a place where the Lord has called them. It can often be very uh, trying. It can be very emotional because of the, the time that was spent, the investment that was spent in the life of one another. What an interesting side of Paul's life. You know, here he is sharing with the Christian world, both then and now, of the profound friendship we find among ourselves as we partner together in the work of the ministry. You know, one of the molds that we have to break out of is this American church, even us, even where we are in a small town environment, is the fact that it's only about Sunday. Sunday is the only time we're going to see one another. And, you know, of course a pastor is going to say, I want more <laughs> participation in all these events. And I do respect and I do understand but as we grow in the Lord and as we get to know one another better, you know, I see it happening. I see the texts that take place, some of them. I see the discussions. I see the fellowship that happens in your homes. And I see how we are becoming a part of one another's lives. But I also see there's a lot more room to grow in that area. You know, if you're holding back for whatever reason, you know, I would suggest and ask that you pray about being more apart, more intimate in this church, in this family, in this body of believers. You will not regret it. I know there are so many stories of church hurt and ministry pain that take place. But it's far overshadowed by the wonderful things that can happen in our fellowship yep. as we do it God's way. Perhaps you notice the times when you go away on travel or work or family needs, you start to begin to miss the fellowship. You miss the folks at the church. You miss your brothers and sisters. It's a healthy church, not a perfect church that we're talking about, but a healthy church. They became imperfect the, time, the minute I stepped in or you stepped in, right? But the church will tend to grow on you. But one of the most troubling aspects of the world today that I see and I think you've noticed is how alone we can be. You know, we may not have a lot going on that keeps us from being together but it's so easy to go in, in seclusion and to stay home. And we have so many things to entertain us with. So many books to read. So many movies to watch. So many things to do. Yes, I know we have work responsibilities. We have a lot going on. We're, we're weighed down in America. We're weighed down in a culture that I grew up in and you grew up in with possessions and responsibilities. But I notice people who get very much alone. And I see this in men mainly. You know, the angry man who would just as soon sit there and just go for hours and hours and hours reading about the ugly things of life and becoming more bitter and more frustrated with the direction of our country, but won't come out to a prayer meeting, won't come out and share his heart with other brothers, 
You know, that's part of the problem, folks. If you want God to move, you got to believe He's here. You got to believe He's here. Tychicus or Tuchihas was not a somebody in human terms. He left no writing that survives. He did no feats which Dr. Luke thought worthy of preserving in the book of Acts. But where would Paul have been without him? Said one writer. And so as he leaves, he has the best wishes. Look at the last two verses. Verses 23 and 24. Peace, love, faith, and grace. Amen. Peace, love, faith, and grace. We often sign a letter or a card with the phrase, best wishes. And here we see Paul expressing his best wishes to the church. McLaren wrote this. He said, there is nothing more revealing about us than what we wish for those we love the most. He says, Paul, he says, peace to the brethren with love and faith and from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. This is similar to how he opened up the message, how he opened the letter. Paul, uh, in Ephesians, in the first chapter of this wonderful letter, verses 1 and 2, he said, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The way he began the letter is similar to the way he ends the letter. He starts with peace. If you're taking notes, we're going to talk about each one of these things, peace and love and faith and grace. He says, peace to the brethren. This is, of course, what we, we refer to as the peace with God. Knowing that your salvation is secure and that you are right with God. You know, he gives that to us. It doesn't have to be a question mark. You can be solid in your position. You can be able to say, as we sing in that old hymn, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he says, peace to the brethren. Those are the brothers and sisters of then and today. Peace. Now we covered this aspect of both salvation and security that God gives to us when we come to faith. First of all, salvation. As we said, this is peace with God. The war is no longer taking place between you and God. The war is over. Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then security, that's the peace of God. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You can know that you have peace with God because you're saved, but you forget the fact that you, you have the peace of God and that you don't have to be troubled or, or fearful. This is a true sense of well-being and wholeness. Despite not you know, not being absent from the conflict and the struggles of life that go on around you. Jeremiah 29, 11, I don't have that scripture, but it says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, that shalom, and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You've got to remember that God does not have evil thoughts towards you. He does not. 
Evil things may happen to you, but they don't come from the Lord. And then he says, not only peace with God, not only peace of God, but peace with one another, the brethren, brothers and sisters. You see how the fruit of true peace actually extends out among us. And this is very vital. It's very sweet to experience. Not only reconciliation with God, but reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we start, you know, hating on other people and hating on the other denominations and hating on those who don't believe exactly or do the same ministry philosophy that we might have, you're not exercising the peace with God. Ephesians 2.14, we learned it in this letter. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made both one. That's that Jew and Gentile separation was destroyed. And he has broken down the middle wall. We study these things and we understand the theological truth about them. That they've been set in place, but we don't always do them, do we? Next we have love, that familiar word, agape or agapeo. The love that the Ephesian church had for one another was famous. Was famous among the early church. Remember early in the letter, Paul, he could not stop saying. It's as though he couldn't say enough. Verse 15 and 16 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Hughes writes this, Again, talking about being theological, the theological reality. He says, theologically, everything is in place for us to love our brothers. Peace has been made in Christ. We know from Romans 5, 5 that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He did that. When you became a Christian, he poured out his love into our hearts. We also have the ability to love. You did not have that ability to love others. And you do that because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 But he says this, All that remains is for us to do it. That's all that remains. And as with so many things which rest deep in spiritual realities, it comes down practical or practically to the human will. You've got to make a decision. As we learn in marriage, love is a decision. We are commanded by Scripture to put on love as a garment towards one another. Because it is the bond, love, remember, is the bond of perfection. You want perfect, okay, and that's our society is looking for perfect everything. You want perfect, put on love, because that's what bonds, that's the bond of perfection. So who do you, who do I not necessarily like? It could be somebody in here that I don't necessarily care for. Or you don't necessarily, quote, like. Or somebody in your, your life. A family member. Somebody where you work, where you attend school. Who is that? Ask the Lord. Get silent before Him. Ask the Lord who God is commanding you to love. Ask that question. I dare you to ask that question. Next we see faith. 
Faith. Now it has been said that faith has two important parts. The first is belief and the second is trust. And in order for you and I to have true faith, you say, I want, tr I want faith. I want true faith. I don't want lip service faith. I don't want faith that looks good on the outside. I want true faith that controls my life. But what happens? It has to come in two things. First of all, belief and trust. And they must work together. Even though faith begins with belief, belief in what? Belief itself cannot stand alone, I should say. It needs to be added to trust. So I have belief, but it has to be brought together with trust. So that the equation sums up to a person who is trusting God on the basis of what they believe. One writer said this way. He, he actually invites us. Because if you have true faith, you can, as he would say, ease back and rest on what you believe. Put your whole weight on it. That's what Paul is saying. So many go through the Christian life in the way some people ride in airplanes, he uses as an example. Intellectually, they believe the plane's going to get them to their location. But in flying, they never quite put their full weight down. In other words, they're miserable the whole time because they hate flying. Their belief is not matched by trust. Trust is one of the most beautiful qualities we could wish for anyone. Remember, this is what Paul wishes upon his people, the people, himself and the church. And so he, he says this, let us pray now for belief plus trust. In other words, put it together. Take that belief, add it to trust, and you have faith. Why is that solid? Why, why is that just not me talking? Well, look what he says. He says, faith from God the Father. Faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't beat that combination when it comes to trustworthiness and truth because, of course, they're one. John 10, 30, I and my Father are one, Jesus said. So Paul is giving us this firm ground of our faith. It's not just, okay, belief and trust. No, it's grounded in faith on the firm ground. Along with peace and love, it comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, we have a story, you're familiar with it, how Jesus healed the boy who was possessed by a demon that caused him to lack the ability to speak. He had a mute spirit. And the boy, it, you know, this, this mute spirit, this demon would seize the boy, it would throw him down, it would cause him to foam at the mouth. And in the course of this story, we learned that Jesus was frustrated by the lack of belief among the people. He referred to them as a faithless generation. And he said that because he'd been doing miracles for the past two years. Now the Gospels don't give us a number, but we know by the description and the words that are describing the life of Jesus Christ in his three-year ministry, that he did thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miracles all over the place. So you couldn't deny the fact that what he was doing was real. And he said, you're a faithless generation. And the problem wasn't just among those religious hypocrites and the people who had become spiritually blinded by them. 
But it was also his own disciples. They weren't able to heal the boy, as you recall the story. And finally, the boy's father would express the real problem. In Mark 9, verses 21 through 24, it gives one example. It says, so he asked his father, Jesus, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And he described, and often he has thrown him down into the fire and into the water to destroy him. This, was, this boy was, had a demon possessing him. He was possessed. But the father said to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And we know the miracle that took place in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, this is so important for us. He said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because I, before you I can say all these things, and I even know of your miracles, but I need help, because I doubt. You see, we struggle in our faith. And we must be honest before the Lord. We must be honest before the Lord. Grace with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Grace. is goodwill, loving kindness and favor. In chapter 1, verse 2, grace was the first word of Paul's formal greeting. And here we see that it was the final thought in closing. The final thought. The word is used 12 times in the letter. You've heard the story maybe that's been told. It was a story that's told of a man who appeared at heaven's gate and was met there by an angel who told him, it will take a thousand points to get in. Tell me about yourself so I will know how many points to give you. And the man smiled and said, well, I've been going to church almost every Sunday all my life. Excellent, said the angel. That will give you three points. <laughs> what else? And the man was shocked. Only three points, he gasped. Well, I was a Sunday school superintendent for a while, and I tithed, and I tried to be good to my neighbor. Very good, the angel said. That will give you ten points. The man gasped again, and he said, At this rate, I'll never get in except by the grace of God. Only by the grace. In all actuality, you and I accumulate zero points and our own works for salvation. Yes, there will be rewards for genuine things that we've done as Christians. But our entrance into eternal glory is not based on merit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He said, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Insincerity. What does he mean that? It means pure, incorrupt. It speaks of the ones who love Christ in a sincere and undiminishing fashion. We may struggle with our faith. We may struggle with unbelief. But we love the Lord Jesus in sincerity. 
But receiving God's grace, remember, receiving God's grace does not remove our greatest responsibility. And that's to love Jesus with all that you have. Matthew 22, 35-38, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And Paul closes the letter with an amen to the end. So it is, so be it. May it be fulfilled. What we wish for, for our loved ones, and that includes our loved ones, not just our family members, matters. And when you're talking about your loved ones, simply to have an education or a profession or possessions, that will probably come to mind when you're raising your kids or your grandkids. But remember, what you wish for can be costly. And I would challenge you parents or grandparents to ask yourself, what are the best wishes? What are truly the best wishes for those that you love most? How is your sense of peace with God and others today? How's it going? You know, sit before the Lord and say, Lord, take, take some inventory. Is there anger? Is there resentment? Or is there dislike of someone? Because that hinders you in your prayers. One of the most important things we can do can be hindered by our own bitterness. There's a lot of talk about revival, a lot of excitement that's going on right now. I mean, you know, it's amazing what, what apparently God's doing in places like Asbury and other campuses. I don't, I'm not a college student, so I can't say, but I can certainly see what's happening. We had the Jesus Revolution movie that we all, many of us watched. But, you know... When you talk about revival, it always, it always starts within the person. You hear this all the time, but it's absolutely true. You know, some, some revivals were sparked by a single person. The great Welsh revival was sparked by a girl who had just been saved for three weeks. You know, and she, she spoke out loud in a public assembly. And from there on, they had this massive, you know, revival in, in uh, Wales. Are you taking inventory? Are you asking the Lord to revive, refresh, and renew your soul? When you get excited about these things. There's a lot of things we can ask the Lord. There's a lot of supplications that we bring before Him. But are you putting that first? To revive, to refresh, and to renew your soul. Keep in mind that it was about 32. In fact, turn with you. This is, I'm gonna, this is not going to take long, I promise. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Thirty some odd years after Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this church that was so well renowned for their love, that he couldn't say enough about, which spoke powerfully to us that we learned so many wonderful things that we apply to our lives, spiritual armor, how to deal with spiritual warfare, how to deal, how to understand our true position in God above the heavens. 32 years later, Jesus wrote this to the church. He said, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patient, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So this church will not bear false teaching. Good. And you have persevered and have patience, and you have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. They were active in ministry. They were a busy church. They had a lot going on. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This was the church commanded or commended by Paul for their love to one another and for the Lord Jesus. And within 32 years, the Lord calls him out and says, you've left your first love. He said, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The cure for this having left their first love was that they are to personally repent. Personal and corporate repentance. Because that's what leads to revival. verse 6 he says but this you have that you hate the the works of the Nicolaitans the deeds which I also hate this was a a cult or a sect that claimed uh, claimed to be Christian but they actually practiced idolatry and sexual immorality but notice verse 5 what's required first and you hear this if you're hearing a true revival in places like Asbury and other places around the country The first thing that's being done, people are repenting of their works. They're speaking publicly in some cases about the life that they're living. To confess their sins among their brethren. To be in a place of safety. And I would invite you, and myself as well, again, take take inventory. You may not be doing anything that's sinful. You just may be living a life that eats you up with stuff and just kind of pushes out God the Holy Spirit from your life. That's so easy to happen. It happens to me. It happens to you. I know it does. Will you look to the Lord? Will you repent? Will you return to your first love? Verse 7, he who has an ear, that's you and I, that's the church. Let him hear what the Spirit says. And he says, to him who overcomes... I will give to you to eat from the tree of life, which is the midst, in the midst of the paradise of God. Some people can fall so far away from the Lord that they will not spend eternity with Him. So as we close, folks, I just, uh, I um, just want to tell you that it's an honor and a privilege to stand here, to be here each and every week, teach God's Word, to allow the Lord to teach me as I learn to teach God's Word and as I study, as I begin to learn more about your lives and the things that you're going through. And I've had the privilege, as we all have, to be able to pray and to do ministry together, to do life together. I would just challenge each of us. Don't you want more? Do you want more? Because even that can be so wonderful and it's good. But don't you want more from the Lord?
and you watch, we watch these wonderful movies, these things. We go together to see the Jesus Revolution. I'm probably going to go back and see it again. But don't you want more? I can't make that happen. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can make that happen. And it happens when each one of us come before you. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we ask that you would just go before us. You know, Lord, you give us the things to pray for. And right now, I don't know exactly what to say, but I know by the Holy Spirit that you will give us words to speak. And so, Lord, I just simply ask that you would speak to our hearts from your message today and from the life that we have in you each and every day. Please go before us. May we be reminded, Lord, of your great love your great sacrifice on our behalf. May we desire to have a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit once again into our hearts. May it change us, our life. May we begin to really truly desire a fresh work. Like the things that we've witnessed, the things that we've read about, the things that we've studied, and the things that we have experienced. Lord, we just want to return to our first love before you. Please go before us, Lord. I pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.